Escape Pod 343. May 3rd, 2012. Hugo. Award. Nominee. The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees. By Lily Yu. Hi there. Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. And it is Hugo Month. Hugo Month is one of my favorite months because I don't have to worry about picking stories. I'm actually kidding there. It's more of the fact that we get to show off what fandom says are the best stories of the year. And it's always an eclectic mix. It really is. I am very happy to say that we have procured rights for four of the five stories this year, and we'll be bringing them to you throughout the month of May. One of the really cool things about this year is that for the first time, both Escape Pod and our sister podcast, Podcastle, have already run two of the stories, which means we're getting all fancy with our reprints. But we will be running the Podcastle recording of the Paper Menagerie this month, and then we will be rerunning our recording of Movement because we want all the stories to be together. We'll be putting Movement in the feed, kind of a, a midweek bonus. You know, we started this because Steve Ely thought that it would be really great to have one place where you could get all the Hugo-nominated short stories for free because before it would be difficult to hunt down the nominated stories. If you were not, say, a subscriber to Asimov's, it would be really difficult for you to get last year's January copy so you could read the nominated short story. And now it may may or may not be online, but it was it was more difficult back in the day. And so Steve decided, our, our founder Steve Ely, decided that he would put all the Hugo nominees together in one hunk on a skate pod. And now there's the Hugo packet. So if you are a supporting or attending member of the Worldcon, then you will likely get all of these stories and most of the other nominated stories in a neat little ebook package for your perusal. Which seriously makes the cost of the $50 supporting membership well worth it. So even though there's the Hugo packet now, we still enjoy our Hugo Week tradition here at Escape Pod, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. So this month we will bring you four of the five stories, and we're starting with E. Lily Yu's The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees. Ms. Yu is a senior at Princeton University, working toward an A.B. in English with a certificate in biophysics. She's a fiction writer, poet, and playwright, and she is also nominated for the Nebula and the John W. Campbell Award. I'm only a little bit intimidated. This story originally ran on Clark's World. So stack up your trigonometry textbooks at the proper angles. It's story time. The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by E. Lily Yu For longer than anyone could remember, the village of Yi Wei had worn, in its orchards and under its eaves, clay-colored globes of paper that hissed and fizzed with wasps. The villagers maintained an uneasy peace with their neighbors for many years, exercising inimitable tact and circumspection. But it all ended the day a boy, digging in the riverbed, found a stone whose balance and weight pleased him. With this, he thought, he could hit a sparrow in flight. There were no sparrows to be seen, but a paper ball hung low and inviting nearby. He considered it for a moment, head cocked, then aimed and threw. 
Much later, after he had been plastered and soothed, his mother scalded the fallen nest until the wasps seething in the paper were dead. In this way, it was discovered that the wasp nests of Yi Wei, dipped in hot water, unfurled into beautifully accurate maps of provinces near and far, inked in vegetable pigments and labeled in careful Mandarin that could be distinguished beneath a microscope. The villagers' subsequent incursions with bee veils and kettles of boiling water soon diminished the prosperous population to a handful. Commanded by a single stubborn foundress, the survivors folded a new nest in the shape of a paper boat, provisioned it with fallen apricots and squash blossoms, and launched themselves onto the river. Browsing cows and children fled the riverbanks as they drifted downstream, piping sea shanties. At last, forty miles south from where they had begun, their craft snagged on an upthrust stick and sank. Only one drowned in the evacuation, weighed down with the remains of an apricot. They reconvened upon a stump and looked about themselves. It's a good place to land, the foundress said in her sweet soprano, examining the first rough maps that the scouts brought back. There were plenty of caterpillars, oaks for ink galls, fruiting brambles, and no signs of other wasps. A colony of bees had hived in a split oak two miles away. Once we are established, we will, of course, send a delegation to collect tribute. We will not make the same mistakes as before. Ours is a race of explorers and scientists, cartographers and philosophers, and to rest and grow slothful is to die. Once we are established here, we will expand. It took two weeks to complete the nurseries with their paper mobiles, and another month to reconstruct the great library and fill the pigeonholes with what the oldest cartographers could remember of their lost maps. Their comings and goings did not go unnoticed. An ambassador from the beehive arrived with an ultimatum and was promptly executed. Her wings were made into stained glass windows for the council chamber, and her stinger was returned to the hive in a paper envelope. The second ambassador came with altered attitude and a proposal to divide the bees' kingdom evenly between the two governments, retaining pollen and water rights for the bees, as an acknowledgment of the pre-existing claims of a free people to the natural resources of a common territory. She hummed. The wasps of the council were gracious and only divested the envoy of her sting. She survived just long enough to deliver her accounts to the hive. The third ambassador arrived with a ball of wax on the tip of her stinger and was better received. You understand, we are not refugees applying for recognition of a token territorial sovereignty, the foundress said as attendants served them nectars and paper horns. Nor are we negotiating with you as equal states. Those were the assumptions of your late predecessors. They were mistaken. I trust I will do better, the diplomat said stiffly. She was older than the others, and the hairs of her thorax were sparse and faded. I do hope so. Unlike them, I have complete authority to speak for the hive. You have propositions for us. That is clear enough. We are prepared to listen. Oh, good. The foundress drained her horn and took another. Yours is an old and highly cultured society, despite the indolence of your ruler, which we understand to be a racial rather than personal proclivity. You have laws and traditional dances and mathematicians and principles, which of course we do respect. Your terms, please. She smiled. Since there is a local population of tussle moths, which we prefer for incubation, there is no need for anything so unrepublican as slavery. 
If you refrain from insurrection, you may keep your self-rule. But we will take a fifth of your stores in an ordinary year, and a tenth in drought years, and one of every hundred larva. To eat? Her antenna trembled with revulsion. Only if food is scarce? No, they will be raised among us, and learn our ways and our arts, and then they will serve as officials and bureaucrats among you. It will be to your advantage, you see. The diplomat paused for a moment, looking at nothing at all. Finally, she said, A tenth in a good year. Our terms, the foundress said, are not negotiable. The guards shifted among themselves, clinking the plates of their armor and shifting the gleaming points of their stings. I don't have a choice, do I? The choice is enslavement or cooperation, the foundress said. For your hive, I mean. You might choose something else, certainly, but they have tens of thousands to replace you with. The diplomat bent her head. I am old, she said. I have served the hive all my life in every fashion. My loyalty is to my hive, and I will do what is best for it. I am so very glad. I ask you, I beg you, to wait three or four days to impose your terms. I will be dead by then, and will not see my sisters become a servile people. The founders clicked her claws together. Is the delaying of a business a custom of yours? We have no such practice. You will have the honor of watching us elevate your sisters to moral and technological heights you could never imagine. The diplomat shivered. Go back to your queen, my dear. Tell them the good news. It was a crisis for the constitutional monarchy. A riot broke out in District 6, destroying the royal waxworks and toppling the mousebone monuments before it was brutally suppressed. The queen had to be calmed with large doses of jelly after she burst into tears on her minister's shoulders. "'Your Majesty,' said one, "'it is not a matter for your concern. Be at peace.' "'These are my children,' she said, sniffling. "'You would feel for them, too, were you a mother.' "'Thankfully I am not,' the minister said briskly. "'So, to business.' "'War is out of the question,' another said. "'Their forces are vastly superior.' We outnumber them three hundred to one. They are experienced fighters. Sixty of us would die for each of theirs. We might drive them away, but it would cost us most of the hive and possibly our queen. The queen began weeping noisily again and had to be cleaned and comforted. Have we any alternatives? There was a small silence. Very well, then. The terms of the relationship were copied out, at the wasp's direction, on small paper plaques embedded in propolis and wax around the hive. As paper and ink were new substances to the bees, they jostled and touched and tasted the bills until the paper fell to pieces. The wasps sent to oversee the installation did not take to this kindly. Several civilians died before it was established that the bees could not read the Yi Wei dialect. Thereafter, the hive's chemists were charged with compounding pheromones complex enough to encode the terms of the treaty. These were applied to the papers so that both species could inspect them and comprehend the relationship between the two states. Whereas the hive before the wasp infestation had been busy but content, the bees now lived in desperation. The natural terms of their lives were cut short by the need to gather enough honey for both the hive and the wasp nest. As they traveled farther and farther afield in search of nectar, they stopped singing. They danced their findings grimly, without joy. 
The queen herself grew gaunt and thin from breeding replacements, and certain ministers, who understood such matters, began feeding royal jelly to the strongest larvae. Meanwhile, the wasps grew sleek and strong. Cadres of scholars, cartographers, botanists, and soldiers were dispatched on the river in small floating nests, caulked with beeswax and loaded with rations of honeycomb to chart the unknown lands to the south. Those who returned bore beautiful maps with towns and farms and alien populations of wasps carefully noted in blue and purple ink, and these once studied by the foundress and her generals, were carefully filed away in the depths of the great library for their southern advance in the new year. The bees adopted by the wasps were first trained to clerical tasks, but once it was determined that they could be taught to read and write, they were assigned to some of the reconnaissance missions. The brightest students, gifted at trigonometry and angles, were educated beside the cartographers themselves and proved valuable assistants. They learned not to see the thick green caterpillars led on silver chains, or the dead bees fed to the wasp brood. It was easier that way. When the old queen died, they did not mourn. By the sheerest of accidents, one of the bees trained as a cartographer's assistant was an anarchist. It might have been the stresses of the hive, or it might have been luck. Wherever it came from, the mutation was viable. She tucked a number of her own eggs and beeswax and wasp paper among the pigeonholes of the library and fed the larvae their milk and bread in secret. To her sons in the capped silk cradles, and they were all sons, she whispered the precepts she had developed while calculating flight paths and azimuths, that there should be no queen and no state, and that, as in the wasp nest, the males should labor and profit equally with the females. In their sleep and slow transformation, they heard her teachings and instructions, and when they chewed their way out of their cells and out of the wasp nest, they made their way to the hive. The damage to the nest was discovered, of course, but by then the anarchist was dead of old age. She had done impeccable work, her tutor sighed, looking over the filigree of her inscriptions, but the brilliant were subject to mental aberrations, were they not? He buried beneath grumblings and labors his fondness for her, which had become a grief to him and a political liability, and he never again took on any student from the hive who showed a glint of talent. Though they had the bitter smell of the wasp nest in their hair, the anarchist's twenty sons were permitted to wander freely through the hive, as it was assumed that they were either spies or on official business. When the new queen emerged from her chamber, they joined unnoticed the other drones in the nuptial flight. Two succeeded in mating with her. Those who failed and survived spoke afterward in hushed tones of what had been done for the sake of the ideal. Before they died, they took propolis and oak apple ink and inscribed upon the lintels of the hive in a shorthand they had developed the story of the first anarchist and her twenty sons. Anarchism being a heritable trait in bees, a number of the daughters of the new queen found themselves questioning the purpose of the monarchy. Two were taken by the wasps and taught to read and write. On one of their visits to the hive, they spotted the history of their forefathers and, being excellent scholars, soon figured out the translation. They found their sisters in the hive who were unquiet in soul and whispered to them the strange knowledge they had learned among the wasps, astronomy, military strategy, the state of the world beyond the farthest flights of the bees. 
Hitherto educated as dancers and architects, nurses and foragers, the bees were full of a new wonder, stranger even than the first day they flew from the hive and felt the sun on their backs. "'Govern us!' they said to the two wasp-taught anarchists, but they refused. "'A perfect society needs no rulers,' they said. "'Knowledge and authority ought to be held in common. "'In order to imagine a new existence, "'we must free ourselves from the structures "'of both our failed government "'and the unjustifiable hegemony of the wasp's nest. "'Hear what you can hear, and learn what you can learn, "'while we remain among them. "'But be ready.'" It was the first summer in Yi Wei without the immemorial hum of the cartographer wasps. In the orchards, though their skins split with sweetness, fallen fruit lay unmolested, and children played barefoot with impunity. One of the villagers' daughters, in her third year at an agricultural college, came home in the back of a pickup truck at the end of July. She thumped her single suitcase against the gate before opening it to scatter the chickens, then raised the latch and swung the iron aside, and was immediately wrapped in a flying hug. Once she disentangled herself from her brother and parents and liberally distributed kisses, she listened to the news she'd missed, how the cows were dying from drinking stonecutter's dust in the streams, how grain prices were falling everywhere, despite the drought, and how her brother, little fool that he was, had torn down a wasp nest and received a faceful of red and white lumps for it. One of the most detailed wasp's maps had reached the capital, she was told, and a bureaucrat had arrived in a sleek black car. But because the wasps were all dead, he could report little more than a prank, a freak, or a miracle. There were no further inquiries. Her brother produced for her inspection the brittle, boiled bodies of several wasps in a glass jar, along with one of the smaller maps. She tickled him until he surrendered his trophies, promised him a basket of peaches in return, and let herself be fed to tautness. Then, to her family's dismay, she wrote an urgent letter to the Academy of Sciences and packed a satchel with clothes and cash. If she could find one more nest of wasps, she said, it would make their fortune and her name. But it had to be done quickly. In the morning, before the cockerels woke and while the sky was still purple, she hopped onto her old bicycle and rode down the dusty path. Bees do not fly at night or lie to each other, but the anarchists had learned both from the wasps. On a warm, clear evening, they left the hive at last, flying west in a small, tight cloud. Around them swelled the voices of summer insects, strange and disquieting. Several miles west of the old hive and the wasp nest, in a lightning-scarred elm, the anarchists had built up a small stock of stolen honey sealed in wax and paper. They rested there for the night in cells of clean white wax, and in the morning they arose to the building of their city. The first business of the new colony was the laying of eggs, which a number of workers set to, and provisions for winter. One egg from the old queen, brought from the hive in an anarchist's jaws, was hatched and raised as a new mother. Uncrowned and unconcerned, she too laid mortar and wax, chewed wood to make paper, and fanned the storerooms with her wings. The anarchists labored secretly but rapidly, drones alongside workers, because the copper taste of autumn was in the air. Nana had seen a winter before, but the memory of the species is subtle and long, and in their hearts, despite the summer sun, they felt an imminent darkness. The flowers were fading in the fields. Every day the anarchists added to their coffers of warm gold and built their white walls higher. Every day the air grew a little crisper, the grass a little drier. 
They sang as they worked, sometimes ballads from the old hive, sometimes anthems of their own devising, and for a time they were happy. Too soon the leaves turned flame colors and blew from the trees, then there were no more flowers. The anarchists pressed down the lid on the last vat of honey and wondered what was coming. Four miles away, at the first touch of cold, the wasps licked shut their paper doors and slept in a tight knot around the foundress. In both beehives, the bees huddled together, awake and watchful, warming themselves with the thrumming of their wings. The anarchists murmured comfort to each other. There will be more after us. It will breed out again. We are only the beginning. There will be more. Snow fell silently outside. The snow was ankle-deep, and the river iced over, when the girl from Yi Wei reached up into the empty branches of an oak tree and plucked down the paper castle of a nest. The wasps within, drowsy with cold, murmured but did not stir. In their barracks, the soldiers dreamed of the unexplored south and battles in strange cities, among strange peoples, and scouts dreamed of the corpses of starved and frozen deer. The cartographers dreamed of the changes that winter would work on the landscape, the diverted creeks, and dead trees they would have to note down. They did not feel the burlap bag that settled around them, nor the crunch of tires on the frozen mud. She had spent weeks tramping through the countryside, questioning beekeepers and villagers' children, peering up into the trees and into hives, before she found the last wasps from Yi Wei. Then she had to wait for winter, and the anesthetizing cold. But now, back in the warmth of her own room, she broke open the soft pages of the nest and pulled aside the heaps of glistening wasps until she found the foundress herself, stumbling on uncertain legs. When it thawed, she would breed new foundresses among the village's apricot trees. The letters she received indicated a great demand for them in the capital, particularly from army generals and the captains of scientific explorations. In years to come, the village of Yi Wei would be known for its delicately inscribed maps, the legends almost too small to see, and not for its barley and oats, its velvet apricots and glassy pears. In the spring, the old beehive awoke to find the wasps gone, like a nightmare that evaporates by day. It was difficult to believe, but when not the slightest scrap of wasp paper could be found, the whole hive sang with delight. Even the queen, who had been coached from the pupa on the details of her client's state and the conditions by which she ruled, and who had felt, perhaps, more sympathy for the wasps than she should have, cleared her throat and trilled once or twice. If she did not sing so loudly or so joyously as the rest, only a few noticed, and the winter had been a hard one, anyhow. The maps had vanished with the wasps. No more would be made. Those who had studied among the wasps began to draft memoranda and the first independent decrees of queen and council. To defend against further invasions, it was decided that a detachment of bees would fly the borders of their land and carry home reports of what they found. It was on one of these patrols that a small hive was discovered in the fork of an elm tree. Bees lay dead and brittle around it, no identifiable queen among them. Not a trace of honey remained in the storehouse. The dark wax of its walls had been gnawed to rags. Even the brood cells had been scraped clean. But in the last intact hexagons, they found, curled and capped in wax, scrawled on page after page, words of revolution. They read in silence. Then, right, said one to the other, and she did.
thing I love about this story is the imagery. As I mentioned, E. Lily Yu is a poet as well as a writer and a playwright, and it definitely comes through in this. For some reason, I love the detail of the young woman banging her suitcase to scatter the chickens. It's such a beautiful image. That and now I want my own bees to make maps for me. Except they'd be wasps, and those are scarier. It's kind of like my uh, stepmother says about the bees she's raising. You've got the ones that produce a lot of honey, but they're really mean, and the ones that don't produce a lot of honey, but they're more docile. You gotta take, if you want the maps, you gotta take the wasps. And if you don't want scary wasps stinging your face, you can give up the maps. I know, I'm getting really deep for you guys. Just just hang on. Stick with me. Ground Control, this is Nathan calling. Do you read? We are out, I repeat, out of Double Stuff Oreos, and will be returning to Earth immediately. Transmitting comments for episode 337, Counting Cracks by George R. Galushak. What? Come on, Houston, and surely you remember the tale of the alien invasion or perhaps infestation in which only non-neurotypical brains could withstand the mind-shattering hum? Well, transmitting anyway. To start with, a rather apropos and eponymical comment from Too Much Coffee Man. That was awesome, 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 that was awesome. Seriously, as someone with both OCD and Tourette's symptoms, I'm used to explaining to people that I don't have a disability, just a difference, but I've never before thought of it as a superpower. Cool. And our quistador, to put it mildly, was less enthused, saying, Meh, this one felt a little bit too much like an escapist fantasy for OCD sufferers. As someone who struggled to overcome his tendencies toward that kind of thing, it insults me a little when it's celebrated as a valid lifestyle choice. Electric Paladin took issue with that characterization, his take on the matter. I don't see how this story celebrated OCD as a lifestyle choice. It basically said if you're different and your life works for you and you're willing to pay the price, that's okay. Nowhere did the story pretend that any character who embraced his or her OCD was going to have a perfect life. The main character's sister was openly living her OCD and seemed all set to become a crazy cat lady. What made that okay was not that her lifestyle choice was celebrated, but that she had chosen it, and it made her, if not perfectly happy, happy enough. And goodness knows, few people even get that out of life. At that point, we took a detour when Devoted135 pointed out that cell phones do not have dial tones, and a discussion of phone history and structural quirks started up, culminating in this personal testimony from Cutter McKay. Another fun anecdote along these lines, my preteen niece was hounding her father, my brother, for a cell phone. After repeated denials, she finally asked my brother, Oh yeah, well how old were you when you got your first cell phone? To which my brother smirked and replied, 32. Not surprisingly, she didn't believe him. It took a phone call to Grandma to convince her. And that's it for this week. Tune in approximately 604,800 seconds from... Now, for the meticulously collated and alphabetized comments from episode 338, The Trojan Girl. If I have the time, I'll get some color-coded folders and arrange them in order of which ones have the most vowels. But I'll probably be pretty busy sorting my M&Ms and Skittles into rows, and ensuring that I maintain perfect color equity as I consume the bag. I actually do that, by the way. Not kidding. You should see what happens when I play Minecraft. Not pretty. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Escape Pod consists of Mer Lafferty as editor, Nathaniel Lee as assistant editor, and Matt Weller as producer. Please check out our sister podcast, Podcastle, for fantasy, and Pseudopod for horror. 
And if you donate to any of them, you support authors who submit to all three. SkatePod, incidentally, is a pro-paying market and is a pro-market as recognized by the SFWA. Visit us at escapepod.org. Our quote this week comes from Jean-Henri Fabre. Let us turn elsewhere to the wasps and the bees, who unquestionably come first in the laying up of a heritage for their offspring. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Have fun and be mighty. We'll see you next time.